Medicare for all. Your bros can suck my balls. Fuck your reply, guys. Please don't fuck your reply, guys. Just listen to reply, guys. All right. I am so excited to have on the podcast this week someone whose tweets I have been laughing at slash learning from slash um getting vicariously excited about the drama through (laughs) welcome to the show ashley ray (laughs) i'm so happy to be here i Um, yeah i feel like we're some of the best parts of twitter i mean it's mostly a dumpster but yeah twitter sucks but you know i have met some cool people from there um so i think that i first like well i don't know when i first started following you but one thing I remember about your tweets is you like live tweeted the experience of having like the worst roommate on earth, which I felt like oh, yeah. was extremely relatable to many of us. Yeah, at some point. I think a lot of people like saw my roommate experience as cathartic for them, which was good because I was going through hell uh, living with this person who. I don't, I don't, I feel, I, I feel like you'll, your listeners will understand when I uh, describe them this way. Like, they were the kind of person who would say things to me like, I didn't realize how messed up this country was until Elizabeth Warren didn't get the nomination. And I'd be like, that's, that's so annoying. I'd be like, that's what did it. Like, like you read about slavery and you were like, eh, I'm still sold on America. And then Elizabeth Warren happened and you were like, this country has issues like like just this really well-meaning liberal and it was just who like just was very messy and horrid yeah she would just like leave our door unlocked elizabeth warren you know she's been through a lot as a native american woman so yeah yes so you know maybe that's how she was viewing it it wasn't she wasn't like elizabeth warren was just like a figurehead for the entire struggle of Native American women is probably what she, my roommate, would say, not me. <laughs> I think uh, Elizabeth Warren was one of the first, what was it, Harvard Law School? She was one of the, or Fordham, I don't know. She was one of the first women of color yeah. to ever be a professor at that university. Just, um, yeah, yeah, you know, blazing trails. Um, Love it. But I, so I wasn't sure, like, from your Twitter if you were a socialist, but you are, which is cool. You, yes. When did you become... Oh, and I feel like I should give our listeners some context. So Ashley is a comedian who has been on um, HBO, has a special out, and is also uh, an esteemed cultural critic slash TV writer who is not afraid of a beef online for entertainment purposes. So, yeah, yeah. I, I feel like yeah. nowadays most critics, I, I think a lot of critics are just people who write about culture. There's like this, I don't know, there's like the, the vibes right now are very, everyone has to be like nice because you never know if this person could help you later in your career or whatever. And I feel like people hold back a lot, uh, you know, especially when you're also a creative and, and people are kind of afraid to do the tough, real criticism that used to kind of happen where I, I don't know. I feel like old authors used to call each other out all the time. Old directors had no problem being like, ah, I didn't enjoy this about this. And now it's like if you tweet so much as like, I didn't like the third episode of the eighth season of that show. Someone somewhere will be like, I did the music mixing and I hate you forever now. So wow. I feel like people try to play it safe. And personally, I 
you know, I, I don't, tr I don't look for just, you know, negative things to say, but it's like, if I have a point of view, I want to talk about it. Also, I feel like it's, it's just TV people. It's just TV and movies. We should be able to talk about it <laughs> without, you know. Well, so you recently had an exchange with Jeremy O'Harris, who I, so I think the first tweet I saw of that exchange was, you dragging him for being uh, very DePaul, which like I was briefly at DePaul theater school. So I just personally loved the DePaul reference. Yeah. Yeah. I was uh, the opening night at Slave Play, which, um, you know, I am a cultural critic. I was asked to see the show. Uh, my tickets were paid for. Uh, there was a lot of controversy about the show beforehand. I had never really heard of Slave Play. I knew people on Twitter didn't like it, which to me only made me go, well, obviously I want to check it out. I love, you know, drama controversy. Who cares? It's a play. Uh, so I hit up an editor who was like, yeah, we'll pay for your ticket so you can see if you want to write about it. And then Jeremy ended up personally inviting me to the blackout performance of the show, which is when they just had black audiences view it. So I was like, oh, I'll get to see it in two different lights. And I tweeted through base, not through the show, obviously, uh, but I tweeted kind of my experience, what I was seeing before and after. And it like kind of blew up with people being like, oh my God, yeah, I hated that play too and couldn't really articulate what I didn't like about it. But you know, your thread about why you didn't like the staging resonated with me. And it was really just like me being like, oh, this part, you know, I, I didn't feel as strong or like these character arcs were a little weak for me. And that turned into like, two weeks of Jeremy O'Harris and his friends just like constantly quote tweeting me, like not leaving me alone, just like subtweeting me. The girl who like inspired the play was like, I'm going to get her fired from her job. And I was like, what job? Comedy? Like, <laughs> it just like turned into this whole mess. And then I found out opening night of the show, they were like, yeah, he like went to DePaul and was he, he was he didn't he was actually like kicked out of the DePaul theater program. Uh, and then he like went to like Yale, the Yale theater program. And finding out that he was kicked out of the DePaul theater program, I was like, this makes so much sense. But yeah, his friends were just nonstop quote tweeting me, subtweeting me. They said they were going to try to come for my job. I was like, what job? Comedy. And it just like he he was literally doing other interviews where he would bring me up. Like people would ask, like, how did you feel about the L.A. slave play? And he'd be like, Ashley Ray just said some really disingenuous things about me on Twitter. And I was like, dude, I'm just a critic tweeting like who cares? You were nominated for Tony's like get, get over it. Uh, and it just blew up into this ridiculous thing that I had to write about because it was it, like people couldn't believe that this had just started from like minor tweet insults about a play so so okay i think i know the basic like premise of this play but can you describe it for people who haven't who yes. are not familiar uh, for those who are blessed to be unaware of the nightmare that is slave play i will break it down for you uh if you were maybe interested in seeing this i'm sorry if i i give you spoilers uh but basically when you hear the name slave play, you assume this is a play about, you know, slavery, uh, you know, yeah, you know, pre-war America. Yeah. OK. Uh, so when the play starts, it's like you see this black woman, she's dressed like a slave and she's like twerking to a Rihanna song. And then this white guy comes in 
and he's like, you know, telling her what to do. And she's like kind of goading him into it. She's like, don't you just want to smack my, my big black ass and all this stuff. And it's, like ridiculous and then finally they like have sex but you're like wait is this like a slave owner raping his slave what's going on and then suddenly you see another couple and it's like this light-skinned black guy who's a slave to this white woman and she basically like forces him to play as she says she says n-word music uh i'll censor myself uh but she's like gets him to like she he's like playing a fiddle and they end up like having sex but the woman pegs him so you're kind of like wait she's like raping her slave she's pegging him and then the last couple is like a black guy who is an overseer uh and an irish guy who's an indentured servant so it's like ooh, we're twisting it right but it's stupid and in this one the like black guy comes when the white guy starts licking his boot and you're like, what's going on here? And then all of a sudden, someone yells the word Starbucks, and you find out this is not really slavery times. This is a modern therapy method where people go to a plantation and do racial uh, slave play, uh, really race play more than slave play, which is kind of bothered because I feel like the play should be called race play, not slave play. Uh, but they go and they do this like race play and it's supposed to be for therapy. And then the second act, like the second act is them being in this group therapy session where they like break down what just happened. And the final act is the like the only black woman in the experiment uh, being assaulted and then thanking her white partner. So it's basically this mess of a play about like interracial relationships and white privilege and just someone who really does not did not want to like enlighten people on blackness through a play but really wanted to use black people to focus on the white experience that sounds like an incredibly intense experience to to watch that play um i guess this kind of brings me to a broader thing that i wanted to talk to you about i guess is just like the ways that like sex and kink positivity is like being used in the culture right now in ways that like kind of purport to be liberatory but actually end up being pretty retrograde yeah i think uh that that kind of goes hand in hand like people were kind of afraid to criticize slave play because when they did typically uh jeremy and his you know fans would say something like oh you just don't understand kink you're just not sex positive you just don't understand like fet life blah 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 and for me it's like no that's not the case like i i know fet life i've been a pro dom i am totally down with kink but what i understand is that when we talk about sort of kink and sex positivity you know that was never i think personally i don't think sex positivity is meant to be like a societal politic it's supposed to be a personal politic you know, your own sex positivity is only ever the only thing you can define. You can't really as a society say this is what sex positivity is. And I think when you try to do that, it just makes it easier for people in power to, you know, make it corporate, to make it easy to consume, make it easy to manipulate uh, to the point where, you know, you see men encouraging sex positivity because it benefits them like the misunderstanding of it because we think it's just supposed to be about like hookup culture and all that 
versus, you know, personal understandings of our own sexual desires and wants. Uh, so, you know, I think there's just like this like gluttony of media that like also benefits when we like conflate those ideas and simplify it that way. And slave play is one of them where people are like, oh, well, you know, it's it's doing so much and it's so intense that like it, it's giving me so much to think about that it must be saying something. And it's like, no, not really. Yeah, that is definitely, I think, a thing that happens in theater a lot, too, is they'll yeah. be like, I mean, I don't know, like, I, especially trying to think, you know, I mean, it doesn't super surprise me that that play is out of Chicago, because like the aesthetic around like Steppenwolf and like, you know, to just create these extremely intense and shocking experiences that sometimes have a lot of depth to them, but then other times not so much. Yeah, exactly. I, yeah, I, and I, yeah, I think theater is so full of itself and gets away with it because most people don't have access to it. You know, you, most people who have heard people writing about, you know, slave play or talking about it, aren't going to be able to see it. They're going to experience it secondhand. They'll read they could read it, maybe they'll read it like a Wikipedia synopsis, but like so many people won't have the actual experience of like sitting there and making their own mind up. And that's how plays like Slave Play get away with being seen as like interesting, I think. Because uh, personally, I think if the more if everyone in the world saw this play, people would ridicule it and it wouldn't have gotten any traction. I think we need to speak openly about these things so that people can form their own opinion and see these things. And it's kind of like, I don't know, seeing that the emperor has no clothes. Like, I just need everyone to be honest about it and see it instead of just, like, buying into this myth of, like, oh, the great theater. Completely different example. Like, completely different. But I kind of felt like, like, thinking about Hamilton, when that was brought to a mass audience through Disney+. Plus. I feel like it was, not that it was a full emperor has no clothes moment, because there are some fun things about Hamilton, but it was just like, it was clearly written to appeal to like a certain type of like dorky, wealthy, older white audience, the kind of people that patronize theater, you know? Yeah. And it was just like a little bit... I don't know. It was just... It's exactly that. Like, it's, you know, it's... Yeah, it's, like, for, you know, the rich white people who can afford theater tickets, they... Theater, that that's still... They know the main audience of theater. And, I mean, in Slave Play, they know that. There are so many little inside jokes that are... That Jeremy puts in it to, you know, specifically speak to the older white theater goer who's going to get the New Yorker reference and the Yale reference... And so, you know, it's just uh, it's just a bunch of people like smelling their own farts. Uh, see, that's why I love television. There it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, TV is I, so I, I'm not like the biggest TV watcher, but I say, that in a way, <laughs> I say that in a way like I feel bad about myself. I, I want to watch more TV. Um, no, yeah, I mean, I obviously as a as like a critic and I studied it, I'm obsessed with with TV. I I truly do believe it is like the premium, just like human medium. I think if someone was like, hey, what do we give to aliens to help them understand? It would be TV and TV shows. I mean, come on. There's news. There's everything. Like, 
I just, so, you know, for me, that's why I'm like, there's something so interesting about it that it transcends cultures in a lot of ways. You know, we all sort of understand this idea of like what primetime TV is, or now with streaming, we all in a lot of ways are watching the same things and talking about them at the same time. And I think it's harder to do that with any other medium. Sorry, I'm just like obsessed with TV. <laughs> I love that you're obsessed with TV. So like of things that were on recently or currently streamable, like what are some things that you have particularly enjoyed? Oh my, there's so much. I, I really do enjoy this time of like, I, I know most people are like, I hate all these streaming apps. There's too much to watch. But I think it's given us so many little weird comedies that would have gotten lost if if we didn't have all this. Uh, I love Killing It on Peacock. Uh, the Bust Down, which is also out on Peacock. Uh, there's some just like really good um, kind of, I, I don't know, lesser known comics who are working on these shows and they're getting these amazing, amazing budgets to just really make cool shows. Um, so I love those. I love... Uh, I, I mean, I loved the dropout on Hulu. I think uh, the, everyone is like, there's every network basically had their own scammer show. Yeah. Uh, inventing Anna on Netflix. We crashed on Apple TV. Super pumped on Showtime. Uh, the dropout on Hulu. And I feel like there was an HBO one, but they all had them. I watched every single one. And I can tell you uh, the best one was the dropout on Hulu. So and that's the like, Elizabeth what? Holmes one, right? Yeah, that's the Theranos Elizabeth Holmes story. And I, it's just the most interesting story. There's a lot we don't know about Elizabeth and, you know, Sonny, the guy that she did this with. So it's very illuminating, whereas the other ones kind of just repeat anything you would have seen if you watched a documentary about these things. I got to check that out. Sorry, I was uh, listening. My cat is just going nuts in the background. He hates when I'm recording a podcast. In a room. <laughs> He's really obsessed with that. Um, yeah, the cats are very much part of our show. We had to just incorporate Absolutely. them for the emotional intensity. I, yeah, I wish I could bring in my neighbor's cats uh, just to have them join. But, you know, they're they're off doing their own thing right now. So one thing I was like curious about your opinion on, like TV-wise, um, I haven't seen the show, and you told me that you saw a little bit of it. But, like, so this show, the ultimatum, I think Marry Me... No, wait. Marry or move on. Marry, ultimate marry or move on. It's like, it's on Netflix, right? And it's, I, I was curious oh, what yeah. you think about it because it just seems like a sort of like train wreck that yeah. incorporates many of your interests. You know? yeah. <laughs> I'm like, look, look, when I, when I say I love TV, like I love it. I am not above trash. Like I write 90 day fiance reviews for Vulture and study 90 day fiance. Like I think there is value in trash TV. Uh, so, you know, I loved like love is blind that I, oh, I binge that show. I love it. So I thought with the ultimatum, I was like, here we go. I could get into this, you know, wild the premise is basically there are these couples that have been together for a long time and one person in the couple is like this is the ultimatum either we get married or we're done and so they bring all these couples together the couples connect with other couples it's a little like swinging it's kind of like is this a key party uh and they like connect with other couples and pair off with a new couple to see like oh is this new person better or should i marry my old partner and that honestly does sound interesting. I do think that's good. 
The downside of it is that everyone on the show is like 21 years old. Yeah, that seems like, these so are... young to be giving out a marriage ultimatum. Yeah. That's nuts. Yeah, it's like this age where it's just like, uh, do you expect me to take these people seriously? They're children. Like, this is a joke. This this isn't a thing. What are you? Yeah, like, no. <laughs> Uh, so it's, that was my problem with it. Like I only, I watched like an episode and a half and by the middle of the second episode, I was like, oh, these are just people who aren't fully formed humans yet. These people don't know any, like all they, they should all just walk away from each other. To me, it seemed like, I don't know. Cause I didn't see it, but it seemed like it was sort of trying to ride this line between like really glorifying heteronormativity, but then also fucking around with it and, like, couldn't really decide, like, which side. I mean, my first doubt when I saw the preview for that show is that, like, painful non-monogamy drama, like, in my opinion, should be relegated to people who have some experience with board games, you know? Like... I'm just kidding, sort of, but it seems (laughs) like it was, like, this thing where they're very, like, you know, it's just really straight, really, really focused on, like, marriage, but then also trying to, you know, do this thing where they're like, oh, you know, well, like, what if I hook up with someone else? You know, I don't know. It it was just... Yeah, it's, it's like it wants to be, like, out there and a little kinky, like, ooh, they're hooking up with other partners, but it's still so just boring and monogamous. Some of the women on it, I was like, oh, like they're kind of interesting because actually like this woman is young and isn't interested in marriage. And wow, you don't see that on reality TV a lot. But then by like the end of the first episode, most of them are all like, no, marriage is actually the only thing that matters and is the only thing that's important. Thank you. I got married when I was 23 and it was not a bright choice, you know? I mean, like, no hard feelings. It's a a minute ago now, but I'm like, like, even at that time, it felt like, wait, I shouldn't be allowed to do this, you know? I'm too stupid for this. Yeah, I mean, I got, I got engaged when I was 19. Dumbest thing I ever did. Like, thank goodness I didn't actually get married, but it's just like, your brain doesn't work right with, like, romance at that time. Come on. So now you you tweet about being solo polyamorous, which is, I yes. think, a term I first heard like a couple years ago. And then there was this like terrible New York Times article, like maybe last year, where this woman was basically, she just wrote this thing about basically like she was like fucking a lot of people and she called it solo polyamory and people were dragging her. But then I saw you be like, no, that's. It's not really what it is. So, like, I, what does it mean to you? Yes. Uh, solo, okay. <laughs> solo polyamory, to me, uh, means that your overall goal uh, and belief in life is that you want to be single, uh, that as a person and as just a- as individuals in this world, you should be able to exist in the world in a healthy way alone. Uh, that, you know, our society mostly focuses on the need to find of finding a partner, monogamy and like growing old with someone. And to me, solo polyamory is basically seated in the in an opposite belief of like, 
if I am 90 and by myself and I have a community and friends that I love, you know, I have filled my life in other ways. Uh, so in that regard, it's very much like you create each relationship as it kind of comes to you on its own means. Uh, so while I am single, I do have people that I love and date and who are in my life. Uh, but we kind of on a one-on-one -on -one level are like, okay, so what does that mean? You know, do you want me to meet your family? Do you want to meet my family? Do you want to, you know, be invited to all of my events or shows? Or do you just, you know, want to hang out one-on-one -on -one and like make dinner occasionally or do this? Uh, so it's kind of like a lot of people call it relationship anarchy because it's like, oh, you, you know, you kind of do whatever you want with people. Uh, but I think it's more just about being open and honest with people. It kind of forces you to be like, well, what do you really want from this relationship or engagement? You know, because I think a lot of people will straight up tell me, like, I am dating to get married. So it's like, okay, well, we don't need to waste our time. Yeah, that makes <laughs> you sense. You know? Yeah, and at the end of the day, that's really what it is. But I think now we just, like, live in this, I, I don't know, I want to say culture, but I think it's just people don't we don't ever really get to that stage now where people talk about their authentic selves or they get that intimate and share details like that so people leave a lot of assumptions out there you know and i realized before i found the language of solo polyamory i knew that i wasn't looking for a monogamous relationship but every time i'd like you know get on tinder and kind of engage with i guess hookup culture which i i don't know that i even think the hookup culture is real but like there were always these guys who would like assume after three dates, I wanted to marry them. Like these guys who would just be like, like, you know, I would barely show interest. They wouldn't even ask me like what I wanted. They would just assume that because I was a woman, what I must want is a monogamous relationship or, you know, something official. And when it would come down to that, I'd always be like, no, I never said that. Like, you know, what, where is this miscommunication happening? And when I kind of started to identify as solo poly and really putting that out there, that stopped happening. Like I started just meeting people who were like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. And it takes a lot of this burden off. And like, I don't have to be afraid of like these expectations anymore. And wow, we can. Yeah, we can just like get to know each other. And like, oh, if we just end up being friends, that's good, too. And, you know, so I, I think it's worked out for me. Uh, I, it doesn't work for everyone, of course. And I definitely have had relationships where people are like yeah, no, I need more than this. Or, you know, I've, you know, I do want like that monogamous thing. And I have had periods where like, I will engage with monogamy with someone if I'm really like, hey, if you think that will work, let's give it a shot. But you will have to understand long term, I'm gonna be polyamorous. That makes uh, sense. Yeah. So for me, like, that's another factor of solo polyamory is that, um, you know, I do, I can have periods of monogamy with one person if I really want to get to know them or if we really want to see how well we click just with each other before we like open things up. Uh, whereas a lot of people who just like have a primary or, you know, do like other kind of forms of non-monogamy, uh, you know, a lot of times they'll do like just all, all the other forms like elevator style where, you know, they have a primary, secondary or whatever. They like connect with their metamor. I don't, I don't get into all that stuff. Cause I think that's the nerdy gross part of the poly community with like burlesque dancers, but you know, <laughs> I, I like, <laughs> I, I stay on the solo poly cool end of the pool. Uh, <laughs> I think I was something kind of like solo, solo polyamorous for like a few years where I had, like, I, 
I was in multiple relationships, but was very like, no, I am single. But I would never have called it solo polyamory because I lacked a certain emotional availability. Like I wasn't interested in committing long term to any of those relationships. Yeah. And that was another thing with me. Um, I knew that I didn't want long term relationships at a certain point in my life. I like was kind of I had like so there's there was always this like I don't know, pressure of like, oh, you've been seeing this person for a long time. So like, wouldn't you be monogamous with them, obviously? And I didn't like that. I I did this thing, a project where I like dated every Zodiac sign a month at a time for a year. I love that. I love it. (laughs) And it was it was just a way to force because I would do it like I, I was very upfront about how I was doing it. I would tell people, hey, I'm only dating Leos between these dates. And after that, like we're done. And obviously, uh, a lot of men were cool with that. I did date, you know, I'm by I'm pantless. I'm queer. Uh, so I dated like everyone, but obviously, uh, male identified people were quite okay with that. A lot of women were like, I don't know, that's, you know, but some people I dated at the end of it, but it was just kind of a way for me to force myself to abide to dating and not like falling into the trap of like, here's a person I've been with, like, oh, and that was just a habit I needed to break in myself. So that kind of did that. Um, but oh, you asked uh, if, if I'm a socialist and when I became one. Uh, and the answer is in college. Uh, I was in my DSA then. And that's actually when I started my senior year. Uh, I went to like the big uh, conference they had that year in Chicago. And there were like a bunch of pa- uh, panels on like, um, like, just socialism and like 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 right relationship dynamics and non-monogamy and communal living and stuff like that and i don't i there were just you know so many obviously there's so many poly people i feel like at most dsa events and there were like you know they had books and stuff and so that was kind of when I was like, oh you know this is a relationship style that can actually engage with my politics because I did have a lot of issues with, you know, the fact that I viewed myself as this like wild and crazy feminist who like didn't believe in marriage, but I was also engaged and my, you know, fiance and I didn't believe in traditional marriage and like always kind of believed in being open and having other partners. And so that just gave us this language where we were like, oh, this is why we feel this way. And this is, you know, what it what it you know this is just something else it can be based in i guess so okay over the past few years and really over the past like 10 years i've given a lot of thought to the matter of is there a connection between politics and like the way that somebody conducts their sex life or intimate life their family life And I've decided for myself, I don't think there is. And the reason that I don't think that is because it's like, to me, and by the way, I'm completely open to being proven wrong on this, but like for me, like socialism is about, it's about like mass organization. And, you know, I mean, it's, you hang around with like socialist guys long enough, like you're going to have like a bajillion people try to, 
explain that like um fucking them is like somehow liberatory or like you know serving of my feminism in some way and i don't know for me i just like i think that whatever people want to do like on an intimate level is totally fine as long as it's consensual and i also think that it doesn't particularly have that much to do with like actually challenging powerful structures in a meaningful way but i'm curious how you see that yeah i don't know i think it's so complicated because i think again i think it's an individual thing i think there are people where like who they're fucking is political for them and um i think when you look at sort of traditional um what's what's sort of like traditionally seen as like desirable um i think a lot of that I'm trying to, like, word this correctly, I guess, in my head. Uh, I'm sorry, can you say what you were saying again? Basically, I don't think that there's... Like, yeah. to me, I don't think that politics is particularly relevant to, to sex, and I don't think that sex is yeah. particularly relevant to politics. Like, obviously, there's, like, um, you know, obviously, there's... There, there's edge cases of that. Like, if you're a guy and you're going home and, like, beating your wife every day, you're not... Fuck you yeah. if you describe yourself as any kind of progressive. You know what I mean? But yeah. when it comes to, like... You know, like, if you want to be, like, a communist and you're asexual, you literally don't want to have sex with... It. Well, that's not what asexuality means, but let's just say you're, you know, you're asexual, you're sex repulsed, and you're a communist. That's 100% fine. Like, to me, you know, I mean, the Bay Area, where I spent years and years, is like, there's so many libertarian guys, like these crypto dudes, who are very into, you know, swinging and polyamory. I see, like their sex as some kind of radicalism, but they're really, really super right wing politically, yeah. you know? And so I just, I don't know. I, I've just seen yeah, so many I times. Think that you going do together. see like a lot of like MAGA people who are like, uh, you know, oddly swingers and polyamorous. And that I think is another, you know, obviously the thing that they aren't inherently socialists. Uh, but I do think, uh, like your who you're fucking and who you want to have sex with can be political when a lot of that is tied to like you know societal expectations of like what is desirable and what is attractive and i think you know across like communities especially like with some men of color you see a lot of them you know desiring west or you know western beauty standards and so that's when I think it can become political when you when you see people who are like, oh, well, I only, you know, I'm attracted to white people. And what's wrong with that? Yeah, that's and up. people who yeah, people who like expect, you know, oh, well, if I'm going to date a black woman, then she has to perm and straighten her hair because I find that more attractive. And like all of that stuff, I think, is real and like based in fucked up shit. Um, and obviously, like, you know, but I think there's so many different ways that that gets internalized in a person that you can't even, like, point to one thing and be like, this is what causes this, you know? I There's so many ways that that, like, fucks people up. I will say that, like, for myself, and this has, I think, not much to do with polyamory, but, like, the idea of being, you know, solo, a single person, I think when I look back on my intimate relationships with men, 
and you know case could be made that it's just the men that I've been with in particular but I, I do think there's something systemic going on here that like I feel like I have almost always like given more than I got which I don't mean to make that sound transactional like specifically I mean that you know I was always the burden of the chores fell on me like always you know kind of like responsibility for the emotional health of the relationship like to some extent you know financially and just I don't know like I just and I see that in my friends marriages too, like heterosexual marriages like I don't know if there's like that many situations in like this current incarnation of society where marriage is like a thing that adds relaxation to a lady's life. Yeah. It's not to say it's not worth it. I'm not trying to diminish like anyone's love for their partner, but even, you know, it's like even in non-monogamous relationships I've been in, like I don't, for me, it doesn't really solve the issue. Like that I'm just making dinner for two dudes, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. So I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, see, well, that, for me, the solo polyamory comes in there because I uh, I don't make dinner for anyone, so... <laughs> Hell yeah. That's wonderful. I love it. So, I just saw you talking today about Hugh Hefner, and um, I don't remember what came, what came up with that, but we had an exchange on Twitter briefly about uh, Hugh Hefner and, and his legacy, and I was wondering if you could say a little bit about, you know, what... Had you thinking about him? Yeah, I, someone was like, there was like a thing going around about this uh, trans joke in a 1980s edition of Playboy that is a very progressive and good joke. And people were, uh, you know, being, there were just like positive reactions that like went viral on Twitter with like, if Playboy could get it right in the 80s, why can't anyone? And uh, if you love uh, documentaries like I do, you might know that uh, the secret, the secrets of Playboy, is this documentary that just came out on A and E uh, a few months ago. It's like twelve episodes long. It is very long, uh, but it just goes into every single thing that Hugh Hefner just did wrong, all of his abuses, the way he would basically put out what looked like good politics so that he could get away with doing all of this horrible stuff. Like people would be like, oh, he supports black people. He supports women. He, he hires women, you know, he supports LGBTQ people. He like let, you know, he, he let a trans model do Playboy. Uh, but that was all just a distraction to hide from the fact that he was, you know, recording these women without their consent or drugging them or helping, Ew. you know, rapists. Yeah. Disgusting. Yeah. Man, it's crazy how long that's been a thing, too. Like, but that, I mean, like, men creating a public persona of, like, feminist guy. Not that that's necessarily, I think, fair to characterize Hugh Hefner as, but, you know, uh, politically, sexually progressive, progressive on issues of, you know like, gender stuff, but then actually kind of behind the scenes doing some, like, real shady shit. Like, to me, like, John Lennon was a very... Oh, yeah, early, fuck John Lennon. Yeah, yeah. just <laughs> friggin', you know... He was... He was a woman abuser who loved to uh, 
<laughs> make music and about like peace and love and talk about uh, liberation. But you know, I don't know. I mean, like, there's there's so many of those those guys even today. And uh, to me, that's like one of my my top online beefs as a as a socialist woman is just like seeing men talk about stuff that I just know they do not practice in their real life, you know? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's, I think, very easy for men to create, like, a positive whatever image online, and in reality, that is just not what they live, it's not what they do, or it's easy to, like, embrace, you know, good politics and try to seem like a good person, and it's like, no, you, you're not. (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty frustrating. So... Do you feel like your socialism impacts the way that you look at culture? Like, is is Marxism part of your analysis of these shows that you watch and write about? Or if not? Yeah, I I mean, yes and no. I I think when it calls for it. Like if if a work really does try to engage with socialism or political ideas uh, I want to get into that. Or if, you know, it it's depicting socialist cultures, I want to get into that. Uh, but I have seen this thing where I notice a lot of critics will, like, hold TV shows to a standard of, like, socialism that I really don't think is fair in criticism. Like, I, you know, I think we do also have to accept, like, yes, this is our current political state and some TV shows will exist in our current political state, so why should I, you know, criticize a show for not depicting, like, my preferred politics? Um, I Like, an example that comes to mind is uh, uh, Bel Air, which is the remake of The Fresh Prince of Bel Air that's on Peacock. And it's, like, a tough version of, of, like, Fresh Prince. It's, like, a gritty drama version with, like, it's dark and stuff. And, but it's still, like, you know, Will goes to live with a rich family, And, you know, the dad does, like, political stuff, but he, like, takes bribes and whatever. It's very, like, scandal-esque. And, like, there was a critic who was like, I just think it's disappointing that black wealth is still so focused on capitalism and this show doesn't try to do more to include a socialist ethos. And it's like, dude, it's the Fresh Prince of L.A. (laughs) Yeah. Like, I don't know. I'm like, that's just, I don't know. Like, what, what did you, what do you, what did you want them to do with that? Like, what? it's the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, man. That's kind of part of it is that he comes from a poor place and he goes to a rich place. Yeah, like, that's literally like, that, that it's in the theme song, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's like, what, so you, like, what, you want them to redo Fresh Prince, but reimagine it where we're like perfect socialists and like what? And so, yeah. The Brady Bunch, but without as many children, you know? Yeah, you know, like things like that. I don't think it's really fair to try to like force that analysis on it. But something like Squid Games or, uh, oh my gosh, what did I just watch? The uh, Severance where it really does get into work and the way capitalism defines our lives, then it's like, well, yeah, of course, let's get into this. Yeah, it'd be pretty hard to not engage with capitalism when writing about Squid Game. That was like, yeah, it was pretty much pretty much on the nose, you know? Yeah, but I, lo- but I loved like, it. Yeah. I thought it was great. But yeah, yeah. 
I loved it. But, you know, when I'm reviewing, like, 90 Day Fiancé, actually, that's not true because there is a lot about capitalism and socialism in 90 Day Fiancé. So I'm not even going to disrespect the show by acting like I don't engage with that, with that. But, <laughs> well, I don't know, when I'm just, like, looking at, like, sitcoms, you know, I, I used to, like, write reviews of Blackish and stuff like that. You know, the that's not what it's for. You know, you're, you have to engage with this in the way that the audience appreciates and try to understand what the audience appreciates in it instead of forcing your own like point of view or what you would like to see from it sometimes. Well, I am, I I'm excited for our listeners to, to check out your work. Any, any writing that you particularly would steer people to or comedy as well. Yeah, I I would say check out my podcast, TV I Say with Ashley Ray. Uh, It just moved to Earwolf. So wherever you listen to your Earwolf podcast, you can check out the first season. And basically, I talk to a lot of my favorite actors and writers and people who make my favorite TV shows. Uh, And we get into some of the politics of it. Like I did an episode about 90 Day Fiance with Roxane Gay and Seth Rogen. Oh, wow, that's awesome. yeah, I always like to like give that as the one to start with because I think it it kind of summarizes my whole thing of like highbrow trash TV talk. Amazing. <laughs> and you know, we get into a lot of it being about like immigration in the United States and it is about like the the lie of the American dream in this melting pot. Um so I I I would say that and uh season 2 will be out in June. And, you know, follow me on Twitter at the Ashley Ray. I feel like I'm just always tweeting about my favorite shows. Uh, I have a newsletter. Uh, it's a stub Substack. If you follow me on Twitter, you can find it. Well, I'm excited to check out your Substack. And, um, yeah, also check out Ashley's stand-up. Very, yeah. very funny. Yeah, I, if you live in L.A., oh, I'm doing shows all the time. Uh, I will be in New York soon, Boston. Uh, on dates that I've not confirmed yet, but I will be. Uh, cool. Well, hit, and you can you yeah. hit me up when you're in New York. Yeah, yeah. You can you know, go look at the HBO thing. I'm so bad at promoting myself all the time. <laughs> well, I you know I, I respect somebody who um, likes online beefing more than self promotion. That is right where my right. heart's at. <laughs> Yeah. It's like self-promote. Like, no, go read my article where I tear Jeremy O'Harris apart. Like, that's something you'll enjoy. <laughs> like, I, I explain all the drama. Like, you're probably listening. Like, I don't really understand. Like, this play was bad. So he, like, har- go read it and you'll be like, oh, my gosh. Yeah. Um, Ashley, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. And, uh, yeah, again, to our listeners, don't miss following Ashley on Twitter. It's, it's yes. very entertaining. Thank you so much for listening to Reply Guys. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Reply Guys, where we have a catalog of over 25 bonus interviews with renowned writers, journalists, and comedians, with an additional episode uploaded each week. The show is hosted by Kate Willett and me, Julia Clare. Our producer is Genevieve Garrity. Our theme song was performed by Emily Fremgen, who wrote the song with Kate Willett. Our artwork is by Adrian Lobel. If you want to find us on Twitter, we're at Kate Willett with two L's and two T's. And I'm at O Julia Tweets, O-H Julia Tweets. And Twitter is where you can, of course, also find our reply guys. They are always with us. Bernie, take us out. walking that ribbon of highway I saw above me 
that endless skyway, I saw below me that golden valley. This land was made for you and me. This land is your land. Your this land, land is mine. 